It all began with a four-letter word, wall. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. I will build a great, great wall on our southern border, and I will have Mexico pay for that wall. Mark my words. As Donald Trump's campaign for president heated up four years ago, it was the word that launched a thousand rallies. Because I've been hearing a lot of things, oh, the wall didn't make that much of a difference. You know where it made a big difference? Right here in El Paso. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. Now, most immigration experts would tell you it was a fantasy. It was too expensive, not to mention that it wouldn't solve the problem of people crossing the border without papers, let alone do anything to address the growing number of asylum seekers legally asking for refuge at ports of entry. But there was a simplicity to it, a catchiness. Build the wall. It reduced a complicated issue to a small idea, and it very well may have catapulted a reality television star into the nation's highest office. The phrase, of course, wasn't just build the wall. It was also make Mexico pay for it. Now, in Mexico, this was widely ridiculed. It was the material of jokes and can you believe this guy dinner conversations. Shortly after Trump's inauguration in 2017, then-President Enrique Peña Nieto went on TV to make Mexico's position clear. Mexico no cree en los muros. Lo he dicho una y otra vez. Mexico no pagará ningún muro. Mexico doesn't believe in walls, he said. I've said it again and again. Mexico isn't going to pay for any wall. Now, it's near the end of the first term of the Trump presidency, and something perhaps unexpected has happened. Mexico has a new president, a leftist and a populist. He, like his predecessor, scoffed at the idea of paying for the wall. Yet to the surprise of many, he's become a willing partner in Trump's mission of slowing immigration to a trickle. Trump hasn't built his promised wall, at least not more than a few small sections of it. But it turns out he doesn't need it, and that's because the wall has become Mexico itself. From NPR and Futuro Media, it's Latino USA, I'm Maria Hinojosa. On today's episode, The Moving Border, Part 1, The North. The real wall, the one that President Trump has successfully built, is not a wall of steel or even cement. You could actually say it's a paper wall. It's a wall of policies, policies that push migrants out of the U.S. and further and further south into Mexico. These are policies made by the United States government, as well as Mexican policies made under pressure and with financial support from the United States. In January of this year, I visited Mexico, both its northern and southern borders, to learn more about this policy wall and how it's affecting the lives of migrants today. I see razor wire now to my right, a gate over the pathway 
I started by crossing the border into Ciudad Juarez. It's a huge, busy city of nearly one and a half million people right across the Rio Grande from El Paso, Texas, which is its sister city. And as a little girl, I remember making this crossing a couple of times on family vacations to Mexico. But now it seems so different. So I've got fence above my head, fencing to my right, fencing to my left. It's like I'm in a cage. It's a little strange. And I'm just getting to the big, huge, rusted, massive barricade that is the fence, the wall. It's long, rusty, brown. Um, And this was not here in all of the years that I crossed as a little kid. You never saw this. The border crossing between these two cities is a place where the Trump administration has piloted many of its new immigration programs. So Juarez is a place where you get a chance to see the results. We're going to look at policies facing one group of migrants specifically. They're considered the most vulnerable. They're asylum seekers, and they're supposed to have the most protections and care. Over the last couple of years, makeshift tent camps of asylum seekers have popped up in cities and towns all along the border. There are families that are sleeping under bridges right out in the open. Here in Ciudad Juarez, a large encampment at a park where thousands of people were living has recently been disbanded. Now those asylum seekers are scattered throughout the city, staying in a series of shelters run by churches and private organizations. And one of those shelters will be our first stop. So now we're in a very poor area of Juarez. The street that we're on is not paved. It's all dirt. The shelter we visit is located in a squat building with a plain white wall and a sign outside that says it's a community center. There are some kids outside playing soccer, and they told me that migrants live here. Hola. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Hola, buenas tardes. We walk towards the back of this place and I just begin to follow the smell. There's a mixture of sweet and salty coming from the kitchen. <laughs> On a very small stove, One woman is stirring hot cereal with milk for her kids. On another burner, a young man with a funky haircut and a pink and blue jacket is making sopita de pollo, chicken soup. There's an older woman who's getting her hair dyed in the kitchen, and others are sitting in the back patio smoking cigarettes. That's Catherine. She's one of the only Hondurans living in this shelter full of Cuban asylum seekers. She says they become like a big family. They cook together and the other women help her with her two daughters, the ones who will be getting that hot cereal. Catherine says she feels safe here in this shelter, but not at all in the city. Este, íbamos para la casa de, del emigrante. 
y vimos que a una señora mexicana iba cruzándose la calle, se paró una camioneta y le quitaron su hija y la señora quedó ahí gritando. Catherine says when they first arrived in Juárez, she happened to see a lady crossing the street with her daughter. Then a van stopped. People snatched her child and took off. The woman was left in the middle of the street screaming. Mi hija estaba yendo a la escuela. Ya hoy no, ya no va a la escuela. Catherine says she stopped sending her older daughter to school. She doesn't want her kids out of her sight. She says they almost never go outside, except to go to court, that is. In the year she's been at this shelter, Catherine has had six, yes, six hearings with U.S. immigration officials and still no decision on her claim for asylum. What's keeping her and her family here in Mexico is the first brick in Trump's policy wall that we're going to talk about. It's something called Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. You might have heard about it, and it's also referred to as the Remain in Mexico policy because that's exactly what it forces people to do. Individuals arriving in or entering the United States from Mexico illegally or without proper documentation may be returned to Mexico for the duration of their immigration proceedings. They will not be able to disappear into the United States. That's former DHS Secretary Kirsten Nielsen announcing the policy back in December of 2018. Since Remain in Mexico went into effect, Nearly 60,000 asylum seekers arriving at the U.S. border, people like Catherine, have been ordered to wait in Mexico while a decision is made in the U.S. on their asylum petitions. This is a radical departure from how things used to work. Asylum is a process that can take years, and that's why in the past, asylum seekers were always allowed to wait safely in the U.S. for their hearings. Now, asylum seekers like Catherine are stuck on the other side of the border. She shows me her appointment letter from Customs and Border Protection. Where are you keeping this? This piece of paper is the only proof that Catherine has of her pending case. To make sure she never loses it or that no one takes it, she says she sleeps with it underneath her. So you sleep with it. Sí. Duermes con it. Sí. Part of the reason that Catherine and 60,000 asylum seekers, mostly Central Americans, have been ordered to wait in Mexico is a surprisingly cooperative relationship between President Trump and Mexico's president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, better known as AMLO. Y no les voy a fallar. In 2018, AMLO became Mexico's first leftist president in decades. And at first, migrant advocates had high expectations. Mexico's leftist presidential candidate, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, is in New York to show solidarity with his fellow countrymen living in the city. He claims the Trump administration's immigration crackdown is a violation of human rights. It seemed like AMLO was really going to change things. Right away, he created this fund to address root causes of migration from Central America. He pledged 30 
billion over the next five years. But then some began to question how many of the progressive policies he talked about could really be achieved. Then in the summer of last year, AMLO was put to the test. So President Trump is increasing pressure on Mexico, demanding the country does something to stop undocumented immigrants from crossing the border. Overnight, President Trump tweeted, the United States will impose tariffs on Mexico until the flow of migrants stops. At first, AMLO refused. But as pressure intensified, and with Mexico's economy under threat, he had a surprising change of heart. After 10 days of threats from President Trump to levy tariffs on Mexican products, Mr. Trump announced Friday night that he had struck a deal. The deal was to work with Trump on immigration enforcement. AMLO agreed to a plan to greatly expand MPP, the Remain in Mexico policy, and to begin using Mexico's newly minted National Guard to patrol the border and detain migrants. It had been sold to the public as a force that would deal with crime and corruption issues. By September of 2019, Mexico announced it had reduced migrant movement north towards the U.S. border by 50 percent. And this collaboration between the U.S. and Mexico has led to a situation that has put asylum seekers' lives on the line. That's coming up. Stay with us. No te vayas. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp, the online counseling service dedicated to connecting you with a licensed counselor to help you overcome whatever stands in the way of your happiness. Fill out a questionnaire and get matched with a professional tailored to your needs. And if you aren't satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one at any time free of charge. Visit BetterHelp.com Latino to get 10% off your first month. Get the help you deserve with BetterHelp. Face masks have become the new normal as we continue to grapple with the ongoing pandemic. But when did we start wearing masks for our health and safety? This week on Throughline, the origins of the N95 mask and how it became the life-saving tool it is today. Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. back. At the port of entry by the border, I'm waiting for attorney Linda Rivas. Hi. Hi, Linda. Maria Hinojosa. Nice to meet you. I'm the executive director at Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, and we're a 32-year-old legal nonprofit in El Paso, Texas. And as of the Remain in Mexico program starting, um, a lot of our work is now on this side of the border in Ciudad Juarez. Linda takes me to see another piece of Trump's policy wall in action. Where are we? Describe where we are. You cross the bridge and you just turn the corner and it's kind of hidden in here. And it's um, called a Caim. 
CAIM, which is the Center for Comprehensive Migrant Services, is a state-run agency that acts as a processing center of sorts for migrants in Juarez. Now, its goal is to provide a one-stop shop where migrants can apply for social services, where they can get legal assistance, and also... This is also um, where people are being metered. Metering is another way the U.S. and Mexican governments are collaborating on border policy, even if it's a little unofficial. So what metering means, simply, is that U.S. officials have been arbitrarily limiting the number of people who are allowed to present themselves at the border each day to ask for asylum. They're not letting them physically step foot into the United States to legally seek asylum. They're saying, we're full, go away. And when they say we're full, go away, they're suddenly a system emerged that was like, okay, we're taking 30 people today. We're taking 10 people today. We're taking no one today. Once the U.S. started taking fewer people, it caused a huge backlog of migrants waiting in Mexico to ask for asylum. And that's when the list began. It started as a kind of makeshift list in a migrant's notebook well over a year ago. With new people arriving every day, it kept track of who was here first and whose turn it would be to go to the border and speak to a U.S. officer to present their claim. It was the way migrants could take some control of the situation and keep some order while they waited. Eventually, in Juarez, this government office took charge of the list. Buenas tardes. CBP recibe a 10 personas hoy ingresando por la tarde. Nos quedamos en el número... CBP will see 10 people today, number 19,428. A Mexican official calls this out to a large room. The person holding the number approaches the official to say that they're here. An official later tells me that at its highest point, there were over 6,000 people on the list at once waiting for their number to be called. Right now, there are just 200 names of people waiting on the list. It's another sign that the policy wall is doing the job it was meant to do. And even though we saw it happening ourselves, Mexican officials won't admit on the record that they're managing the list. They know that working with the U.S. on this would be controversial. And so this has been a pretty unofficial cooperation between the two governments um, to what the United States is trying to control the flow with, I believe, no justification. Rivas says metering and the Remain in Mexico policy work hand in hand. Metering keeps asylum seekers in Mexico waiting for their number to be called. And once it finally is, the Remain in Mexico policy then draws out that wait. The problem is, the U.S. has exported a key responsibility for dealing with highly vulnerable refugees, their immediate safety and protection. Mexico is left to figure it out, and they have no requirement to prove anything is being done. 
what Mexico has done is this. Migrants on MPP are now given a document which protects them from being deported from Mexico while their case is pending. If they want to work legally in Mexico while they're waiting or access health care, they have to request something called a CURP, which is basically like a temporary social security number, but it only lasts six months. And whether they can get this document in every border city or if it can be renewed depends on who you ask. I think that reflects the fact that on paper, things are one way and then in practice it's another. That's Maureen Mayer. She's an advocate at the Washington Office on Latin America. She says Mexico is getting by providing the bare minimum for those waiting under MPP. The Mexican government really promised originally to look at opportunities for employment and other services. We really haven't seen that pan out at the border or or elsewhere. In Juarez, Mexico's government has what they think is a tempting offer for those who have been forced to remain in the north of Mexico and fear the high levels of crime here. They're offering a free bus ride to the south of Mexico while they wait out their process. It's a one-way ticket. You have to figure out on your own how to get the funds to bus yourself back up to the border. And obviously that poses a question to what happens if your hearing date changes. So it's I think it's, it's for the most part, a program that the Mexican government adopted to try to get people out of the northern border. But if they were really concerned about supporting this population, you wouldn't send them all the way back to southern Mexico. This is an instance where Mexico isn't just a passive bystander to a U.S. policy that pushes asylum seekers away from the U.S. border. This is one that Mexico has created. Meyer thinks the point of the busing program ultimately is to convince people to just give up on their asylum claims. Maybe if we can make it so uncomfortable and unbearable to stay there, people just go home. But for those who still decide to stay, the end result of this policy wall we've been talking about is that asylum seekers are stuck on the border for long periods of time, living in shelters in an ambiguous legal status. And that adds up to a situation that puts them at risk. Which leads me to the story of M and her seven-year-old daughter, A. We're referring to them by their first initials for their protection. Linda introduces me to them at the Migrant Center. And later, I'm invited to visit M at the house where she's staying to hear their story in a little bit more privacy. They're living with an employee from the shelter, And in return for a bedroom that she shares with her daughter, she has to clean the house and keep things tidy. M says she traveled with her daughter, as well as her husband and young son from Honduras. Somewhere along the way, they were split up, and M continued north with her daughter alone. Then she tells me they were kidnapped just hours after they arrived in Juarez. M says she was sitting at a bus stop with her daughter on the outskirts of the city, trying to get downtown. It was dusk, and by now it was cold. 
they didn't have coats, which is the easiest way to spot new arrivals to Juarez during the winter months. M says that a man sat down on the bench next to her and asked where she was heading. Then he got up and made a phone call. And a few minutes later, a truck pulls up, a man gets out, he flashes a gun and tells her to get in with her daughter. M says that they were taken to a warehouse where 10 other migrants were being held. She says the kidnappers contacted their families for ransom money. M says when the kidnappers would take people out of the warehouse, they never came back. No sabía por qué qué hacían con la gente, para dónde la llevaban. Fue cuando me sacaron a mí y fue cuando yo me pude liberar de ellos. One day, they came for her, crammed her and her daughter A and a few others into the backseat of a car. She says when they got caught in traffic for a moment, she knew it was now or never since no ransom had been paid. She managed to push open the car door and run away with her daughter. The mom tells me that a good Samaritan takes them to a shelter. It was so packed, there weren't enough beds or blankets, so mother and daughter were forced to sleep on the floor in a room full of strangers. Mucha gente, mucha gente. Eh, dormíamos en colchonetas, eh, no teníamos cobijas, no había suficiente ropa. And then one night at the shelter, something horrible happened. M says her young daughter woke up next to her naked, and she believes her daughter was sexually assaulted. She took her daughter to the doctor and tried to report this to the police. But she says when they saw her Honduran ID, they refused to take down a report. M says this entire thing has been eating away at her ever since. Yo solo mi sueño era que, que, que íbamos a llegar a Estados Unidos y que íbamos a estar bien, que mis hijos iban a tener una educación y que ellos iban a estar bien. No me imaginé tantas cosas que no fueran a pasar. M says she feels guilty. After all, she left Honduras to protect her kids and give them an education. She says she had no way to know everything that they'd go through. And still, after all of this, they haven't even been able to get into the United States. Even though the Remain in Mexico policy is supposed to make an exception for migrants who are in very vulnerable positions, M and her daughter, twice victims of crime in Mexico, were told that they must remain in Mexico for however long it takes for the United States to decide their case. In the beginning, when Linda Rivas, the lawyer, first started representing them, they were hopeful. But now the mom says after her last hearing, she doesn't know what to think anymore. The judge, she says, seemed like he didn't even care to hear what had happened to them. And A, even though she's only seven years old, she's picking up on all of it. Porque sí, ella me dice, mami, yo ya no creo que nos dejen pasar porque es mentira, ya lo de migración ya es mentira. The little girl tells her mom now that it's all a lie, that the United States will never let them in. She's clearly been affected by everything that they've gone through. Her mom says that now her daughter rarely sleeps through the night.
as I was leaving, I decided to give this little girl a beaded prayer bracelet that I was wearing. I tell her that she can count the beads at night when she can't sleep, just the way that I do. Cuando eso, cuando tú despiertas y se te sientes, te puedes nada más empezar a hacer así. Porque siempre estoy soñando que, que maltratan a mis mamá los que tuvieron, los que los tuvieron secuestrada. Yo me despierto y me despierto llorando. And then, all of a sudden, the little girl grabs her long hair, covers her face with it, and she starts telling me that she's always dreaming about her mom being kidnapped again. That's why she wakes up crying in the middle of the night. Y no comíamos, los tuvieron cinco días y a mi mamá la maltrataban mucho, le gritaban y le decían que si no iba a pagar, le íbamos a matar, le iban a matar. We didn't eat, she says. Then she tells me that they were there for five days, that they mistreated her mom, yelled at her, pushed her, told her that they'd be killed if they didn't pay. Cuando los escapamos, había mucha, mucha gente que iba en el carro y, y bueno, y ellas no podían escapar. Esas personas Dios las va a ayudar. Then she says she can't stop thinking about all the other people in the car who didn't get a chance to escape. She says, Dios los va a ayudar. God will help them. A comforting phrase she's likely heard during these fearful times in her life. Em had told me that her daughter A dreams of becoming a doctor. So I looked at A in her eyes and I said, I know you can become that doctor that you dream of becoming. I know you can do it. Entonces, tú puedes ser doctora. Okay, siempre piensa que puede ser, aunque sea que es bien difícil. Okay? Y se te quiere mucho. Okay? Kidnappings aren't new in Mexico, but the number of violent attacks on migrants are increasing. Over the last year, more than a thousand murders, rapes, and kidnappings were reported in Mexico by migrants on MPP, the Remain in Mexico policy. And these are just the reported cases. Advocates like Maureen Meyer say the numbers are likely much higher. There are so many cases that are documented of asylum seekers under the program that have been victims of kidnapping, sexual assault, extortion, robbery, that it's also the responsibility of the Mexican government. And the Mexican government accepted this program that the U.S. was implementing there and has done very little to ensure that anyone under the program is being adequately protected, is given you know, access to shelter or any of the basic public services that they need to be able to safely stay and pursue their claims. On top of that, the chances of getting asylum approved are extremely low. Just 0.1% of MPP cases have been granted. And since COVID-19 began, the situation is even more bleak. Most have had their asylum hearings postponed indefinitely as immigration courts shut down in the U.S. That includes the case of M and A. And the asylum list. That's done too. 
Restrictions are so tight now that since late March, less than a dozen asylum seekers have been allowed to enter into the United States. We're in the desert, so we've been hot all day. You know, it's been super warm all day. The sun is just about to go down behind the mountains. And already the temperature has dropped, I don't know, 10 degrees in a matter of maybe 15 minutes. But I'm already starting to feel shivery and to think that there were children sleeping outside in, 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 in these conditions. Um, it's all about making this as difficult and as trying and as... It's just breaking you down. It's wearing you down. These are human beings, you know? I mean, we're tough, We, you know, but there comes a point where you just say, I can't, I just can't do this. And that's where it's just like, wow, the, how many more are gonna never try or walk away? My trip to Juarez illuminated a lot about how policy changes have effectively turned Mexico into a place of permanent limbo for migrants, an in-between world, a kind of barrier itself between them and the United States. The policy wall we've talked about this episode pushes migrants deeper and deeper into Mexico and away from the eyes of public accountability. But stopping migrants at the northern border is only part of the plan Immigration opponents want to stop migrants long before at the other end of Mexico, on its southern border with Guatemala, in a place called Tapachula. It's Saturday, January 11th, and now I'm at the airport and I'm getting ready to board a flight to Tapachula. I realized that the only way to really understand what's happening at this northern border is to go to a completely different one, much further south. And there's another reason why I want to go to Tapachula. One year ago, I met a young migrant named Josue in Matamoros. He was my son's age, 23 at the time, and he was living under a bridge, hoping for a chance to cross into the United States. Over the year, he's kept in touch with me. And the last time I spoke with him, he was living in Tapachula, trying to get back to the United States. And I'd been talking to him throughout my trip, making plans to finally see him in Tapachula and hear his story. But now, I wasn't getting through to him. And so now I'm calling him, let's see. Just rings and rings and rings and rings. So I don't know, you know, did somebody offer him a trip and he just said, I'm out? Did he get kidnapped? Did he get put into a detention facility? Was he arrested because he's sleeping on the street? So yeah, this is exactly what it looks like. This is what thousands of people are going through, which is suddenly you, you, you're not in contact with this person. They're gone. Let's see what happens when we get to Tapachula. That's our flight. Okay, that's our flight.
This episode was produced by Julieta Martinelli, Fernanda Camarena, and myself, and edited by Marlon Bishop. The Moving Borders series was produced in partnership with the Pulitzer Center, with additional support provided by the Ford Foundation. The series executive producer is Diane Sylvester. The Latino USA team includes Miguel Macias, Sofia Palizacá, Luis Treyes, Antonia Cerejido, Janice Yamoka, Ginny Montalvo, Alisa Escarce, and Alejandra Salazar with help from Raul Perez. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Special thanks to Isabella Cota. Our engineers are Stephanie LeBeau and Julia Caruso. Additional engineering this week by Leah Shaw. Our director of programming and operations is Natalia Fidelholtz. Our digital editor is Amanda Alcantara. Our intern is Julia Rocha. Our theme music was composed by Zenia Rubinos. If you like the music you heard on this episode, stop by latinousa.org and check out our weekly Spotify playlist. I'm your host and executive producer, Maria Hinojosa. Join us again on our next episode. And in the meantime, you can find us on all of your social media. Stay safe and ciao. Latino USA is made possible in part by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide. The Heising Simons Foundation, unlocking knowledge, opportunity, and possibilities. More at hsfoundation.org. And the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. I'm Maria Hinojosa, and next time on Latino USA, I speak to a doctor inside an intensive care unit in New York City, where Latinos and Latinas have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. That's next time on Latino USA.